This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Jane Fowler, and it's my huge pleasure to welcome a writer whose novels have won her an army of fans, and I'm sure there are many fans in the audience today. One request before we get underway, please could you turn off all mobile phones? Thank you. Maggie Farrell worked as a journalist both in Hong Kong and as deputy literary editor of The Independent on Sunday. Her first novel, After You'd Gone, won the Betty Trask Award. Her third, The Distance Between Us, won the Somerset Maugham Award. She won the Costa Book Award for The Hand That First Held Mine. And her latest novel, Instructions for a Heatwave, was shortlisted for the same award. Instructions for a Heatwave is set during the stifling heatwave of 1976 in a London family seething with tension. It's a novel that explores family dynamics with great sensitivity, wit, and painful insight. Maggie Farrell is a master at revealing the secrets and misunderstandings, the latent jealousies and irritations that start in childhood and linger on, the fault lines over which we build our lives. We all have our families. Please welcome Maggie Farrell. Hi. Um, I thought I might start with the reading, because apparently the rain and the wind is coming back, so maybe if we rush through the reading, then um, you'll be able to hear me for a bit anyway. Um, so, well, I'll just start, actually. Uh, this bit is uh, when the eldest child in the family, Michael Francis, um, is looking back to when he met his, his in-laws for the first time. Um, I think I should, I should probably mention that the family in the book are... London Irish. The parents have emigrated from Ireland and the kids have been born in London. Um, so this is Michael Francis talking about his in-laws. <clears throat> when he'd first been taken to meet Claire's parents, the thing he'd been most struck by was how nice they all were to each other. How extraordinarily polite, considerate. The parents called each other dearest. At dinner, her mother asked him if she could trouble him, would he mind awfully passing the butter? It had taken him a moment to decode the grammar of this sentence, to grope his way along its abstruse semantic loops. The father fetched a scarf, silk, with a pattern of brass padlocks for the mother when she mentioned it was chilly. The brother talked voluntarily about the game of rugby he played that day at school. The parents asked Claire Bear, as they called her, about her essays, her lectures, the dates of her exams. The food came in china serving dishes, each with its own lid. They helped each other to portions and then seconds. It had amazed him and made him want to laugh. There was no shouting, no swearing, no people flouncing off from the table, no silent brooding, no scramble for your fair share of potatoes. No spoons were thrown. No one picked up the carving knife, held it to their throat and cried, will I kill myself here and now? <laughs> He didn't think anyone in his family would be able to identify the vague area of his PhD, never mind get down the calendar and write the dates and details of his exams, never mind read off a list of books that might be useful for him, never mind fetch those books from their library. He found their inquiries as to what he was studying, 
how much teaching he did, whether he had enough time to devote to his PhD, induced a feeling of mild panic. He would have preferred them to ignore him so that he could eat as much as possible of the food, to stare around at the oil paintings on the wall, the bay window that opened onto a sweeping lawn, to absorb the revelation that he was sleeping with somebody who still addressed her parents as mummy and daddy. But they would not give up. How many siblings did he have? What did they do? Where had he grown up? That his father worked in a bank seemed to satisfy them, but the disclosure that he was going to Ireland over the summer seemed to cause surprise. Michael's parents are Irish, Claire said. And was it his imagination, or was there a slight hint of warning in her voice, a slight wrinkle in the atmosphere? Really? Her father turned his eyes on him, as if searching for some physical manifestation of this. He was seized with an urge to recite a Hail Mary, just to see what they would do. (laughs) I am indeed, he would announce over the artichokes, horrible, inedible, spiked things they were. I'm a Paddy, a Catholic, a Mick, a Fenian, and I deflowered your daughter. (laughs) Uh, Yes, he said instead. From Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland? He struggled for a moment with a desire to correct Claire's father. It's the Republic of Ireland, he wanted to say, not Southern Ireland. The, uh, he swallowed, um, the South. Ah, but you're not IRA, are you? (laughs) His hand, his hand carrying food to his mouth stopped. An artichoke leaf hovered in mid-air. A drop of melted butter fell to the plate. He stared at the man in front of him. You're asking me if I'm in the IRA? Daddy, Claire murmured. The man smiled, a quick, thin smile. No, merely whether you or your family... Whether my family's in the IRA. Just an inquiry. No offence intended. He had Claire that night at one in the morning on her flowery bedspread. And when he realised he hadn't used a condom, he was glad. He was angrily glad. And next morning at breakfast, he was still glad as she sat there, irreproachable in a sprigged summer dress, on a straight-backed chair, helping herself to scrambled eggs and asking her father if she could pass him anything. He was less glad three weeks later, when she came to tell him that her period hadn't come. Even less glad again when, a month after that, he'd gone home to tell his parents he was getting married. His mother had shot him a quick, assessing look and then sat down at the table. Oh, Michael Francis, she'd whispered, her hand held to her forehead. What? his father said, looking from one to the other. What's the matter? How could you do this to me? What? his father said again. He's knocked someone up, Aoife muttered. Eh? Knocked someone up, Dad, she repeated loudly, lolling on the sofa, her flawless 14-year-old limbs sprawling over the arms. Impregnated her. Put a bun in the oven. Got a girl in trouble. Done a... That will do, his father said to her. Aoife shrugged a shoulder, then eyed Michael Francis as if with new interest. Is this true? his father said to him. I... He opened his hands. This was not meant to happen, he wanted to say. She wasn't meant to be the one I married. I was going to do my PhD, sleep with everyone I could lay my hands on, and then go to America. This marriage and baby were not part of the plan. The wedding's in two weeks. Two weeks? His mother started to cry. In Hampshire. You don't have to come if you don't want to. Oh, Michael Francis, his mother said again. Where in Hampshire? His father asked. Is she Catholic? Ether said, swinging her barefoot, 
biting a crescent from her biscuit. <gasps> Their mother gasped. Is she? Is she a Catholic? She glanced across at the sacred heart that hung on the wall. Please tell me she is. He cleared his throat, shooting a furious look at his sister. She is not. What is she, then? Uh, I don't know. Uh, C of E, I'd guess, but I don't think it's a very important part of... Their mother lurched from the table with a wail. Their father slapped his newspaper against his palm. Aoife said, apparently to no one, he's gone and knocked up a prod. <laughs> Shut your bloody mouth, Aoife, he hissed. Mind your language, his father thundered. This will be the death of me, their mother cried from the bathroom, rattling the bottles of her tranquilizers. You might as well just kill me now. <laughs> Fine, Aoife murmured. Who wants to go first? <laughs> um, so those are the Reardons, or some of them. You haven't met the middle one there, but... Uh, so, uh, yes, having a little bit of trouble there. Um, I thought I'd read you, if that's okay, we've got time, a bit more about Aoife, who you met there at age 14, um, uh, causing trouble, stirring, um, as 14-year-olds do. Uh, but when the novel opens, she's... I think she's 23, um, and she... Um, she's run away from London and her family because she's hiding a very big problem in her life, which is that she can't read. And she manages to conceal this from everybody from, with a series of uh, sort of... I don't know what you'd call them, really. A series of concealments. That doesn't make any sense, though. Concealed with concealments, does it? I should be a writer. Um, <laughs> uh, so she's actually in New York and she's working as an assistant to a photographer. Um, so this is Aoife in New York now. I'm going to have a drink of water first because I've got a weird throg in my throat. Aoife <clears throat> feels herself to be cursed, like those people in folk tales who are singled out for the random cruelty of some higher being, condemned forever to have a wing instead of an arm, or to live underground, or to take the form of a reptile. She cannot read. She cannot do that thing that other people find so artlessly easy, to see arrangements of ink shaped on a page and alchemise them into meaning. She can create letters, she can form them with the nib of a pen or the lead of a pencil, but she cannot get them to line up in the right order in a sequence that anyone else could understand. She can stack up words inside herself, but she cannot get these words down her arm, through her fingers, onto a page. She doesn't know why this is. She suspects that as a baby, she crossed paths with a sorcerer who was in a bad mood that day, and on seeing her, on passing her pram, decided to suck this magical ability from her, to leave her cast out, washed up on the shores of illiteracy and ignorance, cursed forever. On her first day in the studio, Evelyn had handed her a contract and asked her to check it over, then fill it in. Eva had taken it and laid it on the table, and when Evelyn had left the room, Eva had bent over it, one hand held over her left eye. There was a sudden crushing weight on her chest, and it was difficult to draw breath into her lungs. Please, her mind was saying, please, please, let me get through this, just this once. I'll do anything, anything at all. Contract, she could recognise, right at the top of the page. That was good. Evelyn had said it was a contract. Or did it perhaps say contact? Was there an R in there? Eva pressed her left eye hard with the heel of her palm and scanned the now undulating string of letters that made up the words. Was there an R? And if so, where ought it to be? Before the T, or after the T, or next to the C, and if so, which C? Panic cramming her throat, she told herself to leave contract or contact or whatever the hell it said, 
and looked down the page. And when she did, she knew she was doomed, for the page on the table was crammed with text, impossibly small text, closely printed, words like lines of black ants crawling over the white. They clustered and rearranged themselves before her eyes. They dissolved themselves from their linear left-right structure and formed themselves into long, wavering columns, top to bottom. They swayed and flexed like long grasses in the wind. She saw for a moment a V reaching up for an embrace with the empty arms of an H. She noticed an A in proximity to an O, which brought to mind the arrangement of her own name. She caught hold briefly of a collocation of letters that said possibly fraught or maybe taught, but the next moment it was gone. She was fighting down tears, knowing that it was over, that this job, this chance she'd been given, was scuppered like so many before it, and she was weighing up the pros and cons of just walking out when she heard Evelyn coming back along the corridor. Aoife wasn't aware of the moment in which she made the decision. All she knew was that she was lifting the contract by its corner up and away, with only the tips of her fingers, as if it radiated some kind of toxic material. She was sliding it into a blue folder, and she was putting the blue folder into a box on top of a filing cabinet. As she came into the room, Evelyn said, All finished with the contract. And because Aoife wanted this job, she wanted it so badly. And why shouldn't she have a good job, an interesting job, like other people did? Damn that sorcerer to hell. She turned round. She smiled her confidential half-smile. She folded her hands together and said, yes, all done. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. As we, as we heard there in both those passages, you have a great knack for bringing <coughs> characters alive and making us believe that they truly exist. How do your characters form and grow? Do they come fully formed or do they develop as, as you progress? Well, it's funny, they sort of do come fully formed, actually. I think it's a little bit like somebody knocking on the door one day. Um, and it's funny, well, I once, um, the last book I wrote, The Hand That First Tell Mine, um, one of the characters in that, the Alina, the Finnish girl who has a baby, um, I'd actually written a short story about her about three years previously. And I, and I said to my husband at the time, I said, it's a bit like thinking somebody was coming for lunch and actually they just move in for a couple of years. Because so, <laughs> I found, I thought I'd written this short story and I finished it and I sent it off to the magazine and it was published and edited and it was done. And usually the character sort of shuffles out then, they leave and other people arrive. I realise this makes me sound a bit bonkers. Um, <laughs> but Alina just didn't leave. She carried on, she hung around, and it was almost, it was almost a bit like she was saying, and, and now it's my turn, I, I need to be in your next novel, which she was, in fact. So it is a bit odd. And Greta, actually, the mother in this book, who you saw met really briefly then, she was a bit the same, actually. She was, uh, I think, very much in the way that she is. She sort of demanded to be written about. I was actually planning a completely different novel. Um, it was going to be a very kind of broad, um, sort of wide-ranging historically and geographically. It was going to be quite an ambitious, large novel. Um, and I had it all planned, and I'd done the research, and I had lots of books, and I'd sort of drawn out a sort of vague diagram of how I wanted it to be structured. Um, and in fact, I just kept... <laughs> it's a bit like sort of radio interference. I'm not sure you get that you know, these days with digital radio. But I used to love it. When I was a little girl, I often used to just turn the radio dial and see what was there. And you often got these weird sort of blips of sound from often up in other countries. But Greta was a bit like that. I got, sort of got this sort of um, radio interference and I kept hearing this voice, very, very insistent voice with an Irish accent. 
And it was almost as if she arrived and said, right, OK, well, what are you going to do for me? <laughs> what are you going to write me into? So, uh, yeah, they, they do have a habit of that. Um, but there are others that sort of um, appeared slightly, slightly less in focus. Um, when I was writing The Middle Sister, Monica, in this book, um, I, couldn't quite, I couldn't quite get her. I couldn't quite work out who she was and why she does the things she does. Um, and then one day, I was thinking about our, our cat had just died, and I was really, really upset. He was a very, very strange cat. He was a rescue cat, very, very shy and very scared, and he had a weird sort of neurological problem, which meant he, he wasn't really like a cat. He was more like a sort of dog. He used to walk backwards. It's really odd. I've never seen a cat do it. Anyway, so he, 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 we only had him for about four years because he, he wasn't in the best of health, but he died, and I felt terribly upset about it, and I... <laughs> and it was an odd thing. My husband had never liked this cat. He always used to find him really annoying because he did pee everywhere. That's the downside of it. As they do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, they do. And so I sort of took my husband's aversion to the cat and my grief and sort of merged it into one, and I imagined Monica taking the cat, which she didn't like to be put down. Um, and then suddenly I could see her. It was all, all fell into place. Uh, you mentioned Greta there, and she, she comes through as a very, very strong character. Mm. And something else you do is you add visual detail quite a lot because some writers avoid adding visual detail. I think you like to add visual detail, which says a lot about character. And for instance, mm. Greta's son, Michael Francis, who we heard there, remembers how his mother always embarrassed him at school. Her Macintosh held together with safety pins, her tent-sized dress, flower-spotched frocks run up in the evenings on a sewing machine, the way her huge feet bulged over the straps of her her shoes, you do like adding the detail, don't you, as well? I think so. I mean, I, mean, I think to me, I, I think the visual is very important. I do avoid um, very deliberately any physical description of particularly the way characters look, because I find it very, very limiting. And also, when I read a novel, and often actually in Victorian novels, I think Victorian writers did it a lot, where they would say, his forehead was very broad, but his nose was narrow, and his cheekbones were high. And, and I find it so confusing. I end up with this sort of weird sort of police identikit blurry <laughs> picture of someone. And I always have to skip those bits. I always have to kind of go, la, 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 la. I'm not listening when I, I read those bits, particularly in Victorian novels, because so, I find it so weird. It's so distracting. So I don't do any of that. I even often avoid mentioning hair colour or anything. Because, I mean, to me, I have a very, very clear picture of how they look. But I, feel, I, I don't feel that kind, of, that kind of visual detail adds anything for the reader. But I do think something like the straps cutting into the flesh of someone's feet and frocks, you know, run up on a, on a sewing machine. And the, and the Macintosh, <laughs> the Macintosh prepared with staples is actually a joke for my mother because she, for years, uh -huh. insisted on picking us up from school in a Macintosh prepared with staples <laughs> and we all hated it. We used to say, please don't wear it. And if it rained, we'd think, oh no, she's going to come in that green Mac. <laughs> and what about the, the plotting of the novels? Because this novel is in three parts. Mm. There's a narrative, but it's very closely interwoven with periods in their childhood, periods mm. growing up. How do you go about plotting your novels? Are you someone who likes to plan in advance? No, I'm not really much of a planner, I think, in writing or in life, actually. I think the sort of polite word is organic and probably the more realistic word is chaotic. Um, <laughs> so I do, I mean, I, when I start writing a book, I do... Um, I sort of set out with an idea of where it's going to go. You think your characters are going to kind of go from A to B to C. But usually what happens in the process of the novel is it completely changes. But I, do, I quite welcome that moment. I think that the, 
I think the point at which your characters turn around and say, actually, we're not going to B or C, we're going to D or E, or even F or G, um, it always feels, actually, that's the point at which you feel the novel is working, that it has its own pulse, that the characters have taken on their own momentum. And then the other thing that can happen is it's just what, happens to, is what happened to me recently. Um, I've just finished a draft of a new book, um, and I gave it to my first and harshest critic, who's my husband, um, and I, he read it, and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, he said, you've started off in the first half writing one novel, and in the second half, you've written another novel. And he said, the two don't fit. You've got to decide. Is it the first half or the second half? Because, you know, and, and it is frustrating. That does how, happen. How did you respond to that comment? Well, I have to say, we had a couple of rather silent meals. <laughs> <laughs> but annoyingly, I think he's right. And I think what often happens is that, <laughs> is that you start off with one idea, and you think, yes, I'm going to strike out with this. And then it does change, or it does for me anyway. But actually, I, I used to go, I used to want to be a poet. I wasn't very good, but um, I used to go to a poetry workshop taught by Michael Donaghy, the late Irish-American poet. And he always told us this very brilliant analogy. I mean, he was talking about poetry, but I think it applies to novels as well. That when you write a poem, you've got to remember that a lot of what you've written is scaffolding. And it's, you know, you put up the scaffolding, and within it, you build your building, your structure, but then you have to remember to take the scaffolding down. Um, so I think often your first draft, or maybe your first couple of drafts, does have a lot of extraneous, sort of almost support that you need it there, and then you've got to remember to cut it at the end, which can be painful, because often you quite like your scaffolding, it looks nice, and it was the first thing that you did, and it feels like the first most important thing, but often it isn't. So how many drafts do you do for a novel? Oh, loads, 25, 26, 30, Boy. yeah, mm. a lot. I am a bit of a redrafter. I think you have so many fans because the worlds you create feel real and you obviously take enormous care to achieve that. Is it hard <clears throat> to step away from the world of imagination at the end of the day to go back to, to family life? Because you can't say to the kids, I just hit a good patch just now. You just make your own tea and I'm just going to work all night. Well, given that the youngest is two, that would be a, <laughs> that'd be a bit mean. <laughs> no, but it's funny. I don't see them as, um, as two things that are sort of working contrary motion. To me, they run alongside each other. I don't feel as though one is stealing from the other. I've never felt that. I don't think I could. I don't think you could be a mother and a writer at the same time. To me, they feel... They sort of feel um, very symbiotic, in a way. And actually, I think, I think children are amazing editors. Not that I have, um, <laughs> not that I've trained my kids to go to my manuscripts with a pen, red pen, or not yet. Um, but I think they do. I mean, I think you, you ha I have so much less time than I used to. Um, I've got three kids now, and it's funny. I, going from one to two felt like a big switch. And I thought, when I had two, I thought, how much harder can it be with three? Um, but I, <laughs> there's quite a sort of exponential increase in the, in the work. But it's, I, I sort of welcome that. And I welcome the idea that children just don't give a damn. You know, as you say, if you're in a good patch, they don't care. They don't want to know about that. They don't care. They want to know what's for tea and when they're going out for a walk. And it's very refreshing. It's very good for you. Because, you know, you can come out of your study thinking, oh, well, I think I've sorted out my closing themes and they just say what are you wearing what's that you know <laughs> what are we going to do now and instantly you've got to switch off which is very good for you because I think there's nothing more dangerous for a writer than having too much time on your hands you know you know you could follow every little ton of tiny whim every little passageway and you know I think they're often very often I read books by writers that I admire 
and I think, you could have cut 80 pages from this. And I, and I think with children, only, only the really good stuff makes it to the page, because you just haven't got the time. And you know, I think a lot of the work a writer does doesn't happen at the desk. A lot of it happens when you're doing something else, when you're loading the laundry, when you're hanging it up, when you're you know, pushing a swing for the second hour of the and afternoon. And it's the subconscious, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think there is. I think there uh -huh. is a kind of strange silt that happens in your mind. And I think often when I'm really stuck with something and I can't work out how to do it, I, I've only just realised recently, I think, in my life, that if you walk away from it, it's the best way to solve it. Do something else. Do something entirely different that takes you away from it. And somehow, something in your imagination, your subconscious will work, and the knot will, will untie itself. It seems contradictory, but yeah. it's what the mind needs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I have great issue with the, um, that Cyril Connolly quote you know, that says, the uh, greatest enemy of good art is the fram in the hallway. I think it's nonsense. I think the greatest enemy of good art is a broadband in the hallway. <laughs> yeah. I think, in order to write, I have to turn it off, cut it off. Just to stay in the world that you're exactly. writing. Exactly, yes. yeah. Yes. And the second reading then, you mentioned the younger daughter, mm. Aoife, yeah. and, uh, who's, who's dyslexic, and in the 50s, mm -hmm. when she was a child, if you were dyslexic, you were pretty well written off at mm. school with very little sympathy. I think some of your research for that experience comes from your own family, is that right? Yeah, that's right. When I was writing the novel, um, it sort of became clear to us that one of my children is, has got dyslexia. Um, and so it was something that was very much on my mind. Um, and it's not something I knew anything about. I, I don't have it, and my husband doesn't have it. Um, and so I was sort of... I was going to the library and I was getting out lots of books and I was reading about it, working out the way to help my child, the best way to try and help my child because, you know, and, and the strange thing about dyslexia is it's, you know, no two people have it the same and it's a very, very, it's just one very small word for an incredibly complicated and varying condition um, that's heartbreaking and challenging and lifelong and very, very difficult. Um, and so, yeah, so it was very much sort of on my mind and I, I always knew that I wanted to give Aoife... Um, some kind of curse, nothing supernatural, but as the youngest of three, always in fairy tales, um, it's always the youngest child of three who has to solve the problem, who has to kind of go out into the world and um, sort of confront the magic, confront something bad about the world and try to solve it. Is this the youngest child now? Going out into the world. Here she goes. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, and, so, and, so, and so I was thinking about this sort of challenge of being unable to read, being unable to solve something which everybody else can do so easily. Um, and it just seemed that it was too interesting to ignore. Because I think my response as a mother was, how can I help? But your response as a novelist is more abstract. And I kept thinking as I was reading these books all about sort of, you know, literacy programs, you know, what would happen to somebody if this hadn't been written, if it hadn't been diagnosed, if nobody knew, if nobody had done this neurological research, nobody knew what it was, what would happen to you? You know, and I think, you, I think people did just completely fall through the net. Um, I mean, I remember kids in my primary school in the 70s in South Wales, you know, who just mysteriously never progressed from Janet and John. And, you know, we left aged 11, and they were still reading Janet and John. And, you know, I'm sure they had it. And I never heard the word dyslexia, I don't think, till my teens. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes. She's a very interesting character because she's very... She appears very strong, but she's also very vulnerable. Um, and the, the dyslexia haunts her childhood, it haunts her adulthood, and, she, 
and she keeps the fact that she can't read secret. Her boss doesn't know, her boyfriend doesn't know. She lives in terror mm. that um, she's going to be, to be found out, doesn't she? Mm. But it's funny because I, I wrote this novel and I was very sure that I wanted Aoife to have hidden it from everybody. <coughs> um, and I was wondering whether this was possible, so I did a bit of research and I spoke to this woman who was in her 70s before she told her husband and her two sons that she couldn't read. And she'd concealed mm. it all her life. It was astonishing. You just can't imagine. Yeah, and I said, to her, you know, practically, how did you do it on a day-to-day -day basis? How did you manage to hide it? And she said that she was so determined that she wanted her two sons to learn to read that she took them every week to the library and they would get out some books and she would always make sure that her husband read them first and that as he was reading the story, she would hide behind the bedroom door and she would commit the story to memory so the next night she could pretend to be reading it as she turned over the pages. I mean, it's just heartbreaking, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. But she did learn to read eventually. She went on an adult literacy programme at the age of 70 and she learned Goodness. to do it. Goodness. Yeah. Amazing. Aww. She um, very much struggles to, to keep it a secret and secrets and the things that people hide from each other are very much elements that occur in, in several of your novels and there are other secrets in, in this novel. What intrigues you so much about the secrets we keep? Well, I think, I think we all have them. I would say, I would lay a bet on the fact that everybody here has something they've never told anybody. Um, and I think sometimes we're formed more by the things we don't say than by the things we are. Um, and of course, if those things happen to come to light or don't come to light, you know, as Aoife is struggling with not being able to tell people that she, the shame of not being able to read and also Robert, the father, who at the beginning of the novel walks out, he disappears. Um, and I've always been slightly fascinated by people who do that, people who exit from their lives, who choose to just walk out one day. You know, it's an astonishing thing to do. Um, and of course, he's hiding something about his brother, also something he's ashamed of. Um, and Greta is hiding something she's ashamed of. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think it happens to all of us. We all have something that we don't want to tell anyone. You mentioned that the father walks out, and as the novel starts, the three siblings gradually return to the family home for the first time in a while. Mm. And as the heat wave rises, the tension between the characters rises, and there's always somebody flouncing out, out of the house. They try to get on, but they argue constantly. Um, they mean to say one thing, for example, I think Greta is wanting to welcome Aoife home and to say how much she's missed her, but the words that come out of her, 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 her mouth are, couldn't your hair do with a bit of a hairbrush? <laughs> There's something very reminiscent of all families and, and the things that we don't, we don't say and the mm. things we get wrong. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I, I wanted to write a novel about, um, I mean, mostly about the relationships between grown-up siblings. I find that an interesting sort of area. I think people often write about children, um, but I wanted to write about, you know, siblings who've grown up and grown apart and moved away, and they're all forced back into the house in which they grew up, and they're all forced back into the roles and the sort of family uh, sort of mould that they've long outgrown, um, and they've got to, and, uh, you know, they've got to kind of confront the issues that probably made them go as far as they did, um, and it just seemed, you know, I just had this image of. Uh, these three siblings in a heat wave in this very small, very, very hot house forced together for the first time. And I thought, now there is an idea for a novel. <laughs> what would happen if? <laughs> and when you do go back to the family home, 
you never know whether you're a child again or an adult or some strange amalgam of the two. Yeah, well, I think, I don't know if anyone else finds this, but I find when I go back home that I sort of tend to regress of sort of about a decade, an hour. And suddenly, <laughs> there's a sort of part of me saying, I don't know, you sort of suddenly feel 14 again, which is a very, you know... Start arguing with yourself if there's no one else to argue exactly, with. Exactly, exactly. There's yes. someone you have to squabble with somebody about something. But it, 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 is, it is a very strange thing, I think, going back to a house in which you grew up, certainly. Yes. Well, it's a fabulous novel. Let's open up questions to the audience, because I'm sure you'll have lots of things you want to, to ask Maggie. If, as usual, you would put your hand up if you've got a question and wait until the microphone is with you. That would really, really help us. Right, we've got a hand up at the very back over there to start with. Gentleman in the blue shirt. Yeah. I'd like to say thank you very much, Maggie, for that talk. It was really interesting. I enjoyed the reading as well. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I, I, write, I like to write stories, short stories myself, but, and I'm very good at describing a scene, but I find it very hard to come up with plots or develop characters. And I wondered if your characters and indeed your plots, um, to what extent are they based on what happens in your life, and to what extent is it just pure imagination? Um, I, don't, I don't really write autobiographically as a rule, actually. I think just because I would... Um, I think I just find it a bit boring. Um, because I have to live my life. I don't particularly want to write about it as well. I sort of feel that writing is a bit of an alternative, a sort of uh, meta-reality to my own life. Um, so, no, no, I mean, obviously, obviously there are bits about my life that do creep in, just like using, you know, one of my children's uh, dyslexia in the novel. But, you know, I think by the time it's been redrafted and recast and changed, it doesn't feel like something that actually happened to me. I mean, I did read the passage I read to you. Um, I sort of wrote that in collaboration with my child and I was saying what is it like what do you see when you because I don't know what it's like to be dyslexic so I said to them what is it like when you actually look at a page and so they told me that often the words wave like that which is you know an amazing thing to be told and I did read it to them afterwards and I said is that what it's like and they said yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know I don't often use no I don't often use my own life I'd find that a bit limiting I think um, but I think I don't know I think I think what I wish I had been told when I was starting out to write is that you don't have to start at the beginning and you don't have to worry about beginnings. I find, I find actually beginnings of novels really hard and it's the, one of the bits of the novel I write and rewrite the most. It's really hard to get it right. And I wish someone had told me, because I did work it out eventually, but you don't have to start there. You can start anywhere. You can start in the middle. You can start at the end. The most important thing is just start. It doesn't matter where it is. Just get it down. And there's a great comfort in word count. Because <laughs> <laughs> even if you know you start in the middle of something and you just write, even if you've got twenty thousand words and you know you're going to cut maybe eight thousand of them, it doesn't matter because you feel okay and you think. And often when you you know like as just what's happened to me with my new book, um, I found that now I've got to the end. The end actually doesn't match the beginning. You know, it's one of those weird creatures. It's like those sort of Victorian things where they used to make mermaids. You know, they'd shove two creatures together and hope it fitted, but actually it doesn't. It doesn't look right at all. Um, I think that happens a lot, but I think don't worry about that. It doesn't matter. And don't read, I wouldn't go back and reread what you've done. Just keep pressing on until you've got to the end. And you might find that you've got, you know, two thirds of it is nonsense. But, you know, maybe if you've got one third that's good, that's okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Um, third row here. Thank you. Hi there. Um, stupid question. I'm sure it's not. Um, the background to it is um, I'm a massive fan of your writing, but 
the only issue I have is certainly with my very favourite Esme Lennox and the latest one, I could have gone on reading for another 50, 100, 150 people. I didn't want it to stop. How, and you just said you don't plan things out. How do you know when you're done? <laughs> How do you know when you're finished? When you know that that's... Because Robert comes back, and, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing and also frustrating at the same time. But how do you know when you're done? Well, I think it's tricky. I, th I think there are two endings of the novel. I mean, there's the ending you actually read in the physical copy of the book. Um, but that, as I said, you know, that isn't actually the ending for me because often I've written the ending maybe two or three years before I, the book is actually finished. Um, so there is a point at which it is a bit like painting the fourth rail bridge. I said, they don't do that anymore, do they? So that whole metaphor's <laughs> stolen from me. But anyway, I'm going to say it anyway. That there is a point at which you could almost start, you could almost carry on doing it forever. Because, you know, even now, if you look, this is my reading copy of a supposedly an edited and finished novel. And already I, I find it really irritating. And I think, why did I leave that adverb in? You know, what was I thinking? Why did I say it like that? And I, you know, often when I'm reading it out, I think, oh my God, why did I never see that? Just awful. So, no, there is a point at which... You know, you could actually, I think, go on and on and on and on writing and fine-tuning a book. But, you know, I don't know, you'd become a kind of Miss Havisham, wouldn't you? <laughs> kind of maddened by your manuscript. So I think you do need, at some point, you need a kind of trusted friend to sort of wrestle the manuscript out of your grasp and say, that's enough. My husband's Jewish, so he does enough already. <laughs> Finish it. Um, you do. I mean, you know, and I think it is odd, because I think you do... It is a bit, little bit like... Um, it does feel a bit like a divorce or something, or the end of a relationship. You do sort of grieve, I think, in a way, after a while. And it's, you, know, you have to be on your own for a while until you're ready for something else. Are you tempted to write a sequel at all when you've, when you've been living with these characters for so long? Uh, I don't know. I haven't done yet. I wouldn't rule it out. But um, you know, I think a novel is a, is a small snapshot of often very, very long lives. And it is just you are just taking a section. You know, it's like cutting a slice from a cake. Obviously, there's a lot about a character's lives that you haven't written about but um, I don't know, I mean a story has a beginning and an end and you have to recognise that you know, I think stru structure is very important to me, it's got to feel um, physically balanced it's got to feel symmetrical um, and so I do have a lot of diagrams on my wall, you know with this book I wanted I, I think with every book you have to set yourself a challenge to do something new you know, you set yourself a hurdle to try and um, get over, and with this one I wanted to write something that had a very, very tight focus, so it only happens in four days, and it only happens in two locations. I mean, it, it sort of goes back and forth in the characters' minds, um, but I wanted it very much to be from one person's point of view, and then when the family come together, it turns into a kind of um, polyphonic, multi-narrative book um, to sort of reflect the, actually what's happened to them. They've all come together for the first time. And so that was a kind of technical challenge I set myself um, but in, in a way, the structure had to be exactly right. And actually, I think often books are a kind of reaction to their predecessor. The book I've just written now it suddenly spans <laughs> loads, you know, decades, and it goes all over the world. And it's as if I've kind of thought, ah, oh, enough with the very, very tight focus book. I need to write, sort of write something different now. The gentleman just at the front here. Hi, Maggie. I've really enjoyed all of your books, and I, I read voraciously. And I'm filled with admiration for people that can write. So my question to you is, how do you know that you can write? Is it a gradual process of discovery, or is there a, a sudden illuminatory moment? I mean, how does it make itself known to you? 
I don't know. I don't even know if I've ever thought, yes, I can write. I've known that I want to do it. Um, uh, and I still feel very much in training. Um, but it has, it's, I don't rem remember really a time when I didn't want to do it. Even as a very young child, I had that urge to put things down on paper. And I don't know where it comes from, because nobody in my family is a writer. But, um, uh, you know, when I was little, I used to spend all my pocket money on jotters and pens. In fact, I still do, actually. This is my new one. It's really nice. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know where it comes from, actually. And I think, I think some of it has to do with the fact I was very ill as a child, so I spent about two years in bed. I was bedridden for about two years. And I think that has a lot to do with it, because I, um, I had a quite a small shelf of books. And I would literally read them from one end to the other. And when I got to the end of it, I would start again, and I'd read them again. So I read all the Moomin books, <clears throat> I don't know, 30, 40, 50 times. And I think, I think before you're a writer, you have to be a reader, and you have to be an analytical reader. And I do remember, age eight or nine, whatever I was, reading the Moomin books and thinking, this passage is good because of this, and I don't like that passage too much because of that. So I think it, you, know, you have to really know a book inside out in order to be able to do that. So I think that, was, in a weird way, was a huge training, very important training ground. I think the other reason, one of the other reasons I think I became a writer is that I, as a child and adolescent, I had a really, really crippling stammer. I could barely speak at all. Um, and I think that gives you an amazing sensitivity to language and grammar because all stammerers have certain letters or sounds that they can't launch off on. And one of mine was N. So people said to me, what's your name? I couldn't say Maggie. I had to say you can call me Maggie. <laughs> or I had to say, so always in my head, I'm, I mean, even now, actually, I still do it. I was redrafting sentences or re responses, so I didn't have to. I could avoid a problem area or a problem syllable. So I think it sort of gives you just a hypersensitivity to the way language is constructed. And also, it's such a relief to be able to write after being able to speak, you know, just the joy of it, thinking, oh, thank God, <laughs> I can say what I want to say. Thank you. How about a hand at the very back? How did you um, get over the issue with your draft where you had the beginning and the end were different? Well, I'm if still doing did. it. Are I'm you? in the throes of it right now, actually. It's driving me mad. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, what I've had to do is I've had to... Uh, <coughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny. At the same time in my house, we're taking up all the carpets. I'm not even going to go into that, but... Um, <laughs> we've uh, we've taken them all out and we've realised that actually the floorboards some of them are very some of them don't match and the guy said to us well it's because a lot of them are rotten you know maybe 50 years ago or so they'd rotten or they got woodworm or something so they've all been pulled up and they put new ones down so it, in an odd way it reminds me a bit of that um, that there are quite a lot of rotten floorboards in, in my draft that I've got to rip up but I need to replace them with something <laughs> something else and hopefully it'll look quite seamless at the end fingers crossed but yeah, um, so I haven't resolved it quite yet, but I'm getting there, I think. Uh, but it takes a while. And it also, I mean, I think a lot of it, as I was saying earlier, a lot of it is just thinking about it. I went away on holiday, and, uh, and for the first week, I kept thinking, I need to think about my, no my novel, I need to think about my novel, and I kept thinking, I don't have any thoughts at all. <laughs> it's just all gone. And then the second week, I kind of had my notebooks, and my husband saying, you're doing it, aren't you? You've had an idea. And I said, well, I don't know, but maybe something that will salvage the terrible mess that it is at the moment. So, yeah, it's, it's still in progress, I'm afraid. Fingers crossed. A hand towards the back there. Thank you. 
Hi, Maggie. I have to display my ignorance. One of your books um, had a lot about North Berwick in it. And um, as a local, I, I was just interested how your in-depth knowledge was developed. <laughs> <laughs> my in-depth knowledge of North Berwick was developed because I lived there as a teenager. I moved there when I was, uh, how old was I? 13. So I was in S3 when I went to the high school there. Um, so yeah, my mum still lives there. Um, so I was there at the weekend. So that's how I developed it. It's funny, I, uh, my relationship <laughs> with North Berwick is a little love-hate. I think if I had my childhood there, because I had my childhood in Ireland and then Wales, and then we moved to Scotland. Um, and it's a bit, I think if I maybe had my childhood in North Berwick, it would have been perfect. But I hated North Berwick when I was about 16. I just thought, I can't bear it. And I used to, we just had that change at the high school. They changed that thing where we finished school at, midday on a Friday and it was just the best thing ever so I used to run down Trainers Bray to get on the 12.20 train up to Edinburgh (laughs) (laughs) and that was my kind of salvation for the week that I could get out of North Berwick because North Berwick is one of those places that you know when you're 16 and you know something you can maybe just feel a little bit ill in maybe the second period of school and by the time you get home, your mum will have heard about it from about five people. <laughs> <laughs> you say, well, five people have phoned me up and said you were looking pale in, in history. And I'm thinking, oh, you're in a 16, it's just the worst thing. I just couldn't bear it. But you see, now I think it's great. And I take my kids there and they love it. And we go to the boating pond and they think it's the best place in the world. So, and I, I like it now. So yeah, it's, a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit love-hate still. I originally thought you were Scottish because of, because of that. Oh, I see. No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not officially Scottish. I'm afraid. I only. I did my. I did my highs. I've got highs and O grades and six year studies. But no, I only moved here when I was thirteen. But we'll take you on. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, gentleman in the striped T-shirt. Here. Thank you. Aside from the real life events of the eponymous heat wave, how important was the 1970s setting? in the book, does it play an active role in the dynamics between the characters, or are their relationships timeless, in a way? Um, well, I hope they're timeless. I mean, I wanted to very much to set it in the 76 heat wave because that was... Um, it sort of forms the bedrock of my earliest memories. I was four at the time, um, and we just moved from Ireland. Um, <coughs> and so it was just... It, you know, I just remember this sort of... Um, this sort of sunshine and this summer that never really ended. It just went on and on and on. And I remember as a kid being... It was fascinating because you'd turn the tap... We were living in South Wales, and the sort of southwest of Britain was the worst hit. So we had no water. When we turned the taps, nothing came out, which was terribly exciting when you're four years old. Um, <laughs> and we had to go... We used to have to go to... There was a sort of... These taps appeared in the middle of the street, and you had to go with your you know, big water drum and get your daily allowance. You know, anything like that when you were a child, anything out of the ordinary was fascinating. Um, but I wanted very much to set it in the 70s also because the Reardons, as I said, are from Ireland. And, of course, the relationship between Ireland and Britain was at a, very much an all-time low in the 70s. Um, and I remember, um, I don't, I remember thinking that I wanted to write about the relationships between Ireland and Britain because I, par- so I was at a dinner party with some friends of mine and we were, we were all talking about the worst things that had happened when we met a boyfriend or a girlfriend or an in-law's parents. And I said, oh, I've got a really funny story. When I met my boyfriend at university's dad, he found my passport, which was Irish, and said, are you in the IRA? <laughs> and it was one of those terrible moments at a dinner table where there was a just total silence, a kind of terrible tumbleweed, and nobody laughed. And I said, but it's funny, isn't it? And they just said, what do you mean? How could anyone ask you that? That's really shocking. <laughs> and I, could, I was amazed because I 
couldn't understand why my English friends had no idea that that kind of thing went on, that it was very common and that we grew up, you know, with people saying all kinds of terrible stuff to us, you know, that we're our parents terrorists, were we involved in the IRA, you know, were we this, and Irish people are stupid and la 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 la. And I just thought that was felt like common knowledge, but my friends said, it's not, you know, we don't know, what, how would anyone say that? And I think, you know, I'm not saying that Britain's any less racist, I hope it, I wish it was, but I don't think it is, I just think newer wave, waves of immigrants have, are now absorbing that kind of hostility, unfortunately, but um, I think it's easy now, you know, when relationships have improved between Ireland and Britain, to forget that for a long time it was a very, very fraught relationship. I mean, my dad says he remembers coming to London in the 50s and 60s and not being allowed in certain B&Bs, you know, being sent away, saying, you know, no black, no Irish. And, and the, the story in the book where Greta is thrown out of a shop for having an Irish accent is something that happened to my aunt. Um, you know, so I wanted to write about that. I mean, I think the 70s were an interesting time. You know, I think there's, you know, it's a decade of huge sort of social and economic unrest, all the sort of the Cod Wars and the Oil Wars. And, um, and I think in the middle of it, there was this amazing summer that never quite ended. Um, well, the role of Catholicism is also very strong in the book, particularly mm. with Greta and her opinions. Do you think if it was set today, it would be the same? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that, uh, there, you know, there are some people for whom religion is is very potent. I'm not sure if it would be quite as uh, drastic as it was as it would be today. I don't know. It's an interesting idea, actually. Possibly. I mean, I didn't. I wanted to write about the 70s, but I had certain very strict rules. I was never to never to mention space hoppers um, <laughs> or Donna Summer, or I had to be very very light on the kind of 70s fashion. I didn't want to sort of have those sort of shortcuts to describing the era. I wanted to be very to have a very light touch, light historical touch. Thank you very much for all the questions. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, many thanks to Maggie. Thank and you. many thanks to all of you for coming. Maggie will be signing copies of the novel in the signing tent, which is out to the left and left again. Please, can you stay seated until Maggie leaves first? <laughs> Otherwise, we'll have a rammy. So please, can we not have a rammy? Um, first, can you give a big thank you to Maggie O'Farrell? More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.